we uh, read the word together. For those of you who are uh, new to Heritage or uh, you haven't been here for a while, we are doing what we normally do here. We go through a book of the Bible and try to go chunk by chunk, verse by verse, passage by passage. And we're, um, we're in the home stretch. This is the second to the last uh, sermon, I think, unless I get new revelation this next week, um, in, in the book of James. It's been an incredible journey. And uh, so today, uh, James is going to be talking about something that's very important to him. And you'll see in your outline there that he gives a promise and he uh, gives an example. And then I'm going to give some exhortations from that. We'll begin reading halfway through verse 16. And uh, this brings us from where we were this last week when he said, Therefore, confess your sin to one another and pray for one another. We want to pick it up right in the middle of that verse. Listen to this. This is the promise. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Then the example. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Father, we thank you that you give us your word. We thank you that we have been about your word since we got into this place this morning. Uh, We were fellowshipping with one another. That's according to your word. It says that we're to do that as brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been reading your word already. We've been singing your word. Father, now we come to hear your word proclaimed. I I know that uh, I, I never, ever feel adequate to do this, but Lord, our focus, just as in our prayer is not on our own adequacy, but on the adequacy that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that our hearts would be open, that our ears would be receptive to what we hear, that we would not reject your truth, but we would take it in, and then allow your Holy Spirit to take it and change us. Because for those of us who know you, we really want to be conformed more into the image of Christ. For those who are here today, among us who have not yet trusted in Christ for their salvation. We pray that today would be the day, as your word says. So, Lord, help us now as we walk our way through this incredible passage of Scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me go back and just do a, a spot review as we move through this passage of Scripture today. The book of James describes true saving faith. You see it there in the title, you see it there in the big idea of the book. In other words, what James has been talking about all the way through this book is a faith, a true faith that actually works. We go back into chapter 2, if you'll remember back there. Uh, He has a whole section in verses 14 through 26 where he talks about the importance to see that true conversion, that true faith always leads to an outworking of that. He does not, as some have suggested, and, and throughout the years they've suggested this up until the present day, some have suggested that James teaches 
that we can be, listen, we can be approved by God by the good works that we do. And we all know that that is not the the message of James. It doesn't coordinate with the message of Scripture throughout. In other words, take the, the, the obedience of a child. And here's the idea, ideal, children. If you really want to know what your parents want, they don't want you to obey them and work for them You don't really believe that you were born to work for them, do you? They want you to work because you are a child, not that you work for them to become their child. And that's what James is basically saying to us in the entire book. Now, what does James do when he comes to the end of the book? And I'm looking forward to next week. It's talking about the ministry of restoration, reconciliation, but today what James is saying is that he wants us to pray. In other words, we move from a a faith that works to prayer that works. James wants to motivate you to pray, even if you don't feel that you're very good at it. He says, I want you to pray because prayer is very powerful. I want you to pray because Prayer works. Now, you see your outline there. I've, I've got the two points and then the application, but I've got several sub-points that we're going to look at as we walk through that. So first, here's what we're going to do. This is the big, the, the big part of that, the first part of that, and then we'll give some sub-points to it. We saw in the reading that the promise is this. The prayer, listen to this, the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its working. Now, put this down as a sub-point. Here it is. James says it, and he doesn't mince words. The qualification for prayer that works is a righteous life. All right, stop there. I I, want to know what you're feeling. I I know what you're thinking, but I want to know what you're feeling in your gut about that statement. Qualification for prayer that works is a righteous life. Does anybody feel like I do when I, when I read that statement at face value that James is making? Because I, I, I would guess that there are some of you in here today who probably are thinking, well, then that leaves me out. Because you look at your life and probably you don't see yourself as that kind of person, person, and especially with the example that's coming up, the person of Elijah. And, and so automatically, you may not hear what James is really saying to you that is a motivation to pray. And you say, well, this is a great demotivator. But you must understand what James is talking about. There are two kinds of righteousness that are described in the Bible. There is the righteousness that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that you have been reconciled to God and that you have a righteous standing before Him by the blood of Jesus. And so here's the first key to to any kind of prayer that you pray. 
if you think that you can approach God in your own righteousness, not only will you not get to prayer that works, but you do not understand the essence of the gospel. Let's go back and talk about this again. You know, every message that that can be preached from the Word of God, from cover to cover, is essentially about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we find it here in the book of Romans where Paul says, and we, we all know these passages, for all have sinned. Hey, by the way, how many in this room does that all include? Okay. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and here it is for believers now, are justified by His grace, grace alone, as a gift. That's why it's called grace, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And then he gives an example later on in chapter 4. He talks about Abraham, the father of of the faith for the Jews. And he says, For if Abraham was justified by his works, specifically by his offering of Isaac his son on the altar, if he was justified by his works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scriptures say? Abraham, what? Believed God, not just he believed. There are a lot of people who teach, all it, just believe. They stop short. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, so here's what the gospel does. The gospel shuts all men up under sin. Our own righteousness will never satisfy God's holy justice, but the blood of Jesus that he shed willingly on Calvary's cross for those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ has covered all of your sin and you have been justified. It's, and we've talked about this before, but let's remember this. It's as if you were standing in a court of law and you know that you're guilty and everybody knows that you're guilty but you through a sacrifice that you did not provide are declared justified. You are declared righteous. You're saved by nothing that was seen or foreseen and anything that you would contribute. You're given what Martin Luther called alien righteousness, a righteousness not your own. The righteousness of Christ is credited to your account totally apart from anything you can do. And it's a two-part kind of righteousness. It is a, you know, we've said this before again, justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. We've heard that all our lives. But do you know what the second part is? That's the negative part of it, and that's beautiful, and that's good. But if you stop there, then you don't have the full picture of of your standing before God, believer, just as if I'd never sinned. But the positive thing that has been accounted to us is that we have been declared righteous just as if I'd kept the law of God perfectly. Not because I did, but because he did, and his righteousness is accounted to me. That's the beauty 
of the gospel. And that's the beauty and that's the first thing that helps us get to why we can have confidence in the promise that when we pray, God listens to us. But now, with that, a righteous standing, okay? You, you got that. Are you with me? We pray out of a righteous standing, but it also has to do, now listen very carefully to this, with how we are living out of that righteous standing. So it's not only a a worked in, it is a lived out kind of righteousness that we need to have so that God can hear our prayers. Let me give you a verse that talks about that. For the grace of God, here it is, that wonderful word grace. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And that's what we've been talking about, the salvation that it has given you, a right standing before God through Jesus Christ. But it also, grace also does something. And you, This is left out. This is gospel, folks. Grace also trains those of us who are believers, those of us who are followers of Christ, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to seek a life of living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And then we skip a few things, but God is creating in you, Christian, and in me, and in our church, a group of people who are zealous for good works, not to be approved, but because we already have been approved. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Charles Ryle, he was a commentator, an Anglican bishop that lived in England in the 1800s. And one of my favorite books that he wrote, and this excerpt is taken from that book, is the book Holiness. It is a classic. Don't go selling the Anglican short, because he was one. He says this, Where there is no sanctification of life, there is really no faith in Christ. Where there is no sanctification in life, there is no new birth. Where there is no holy living, there is no Holy Ghost. Where there is not at least some appearance of sanctification, we may be quite certain that there is no election. This is what I know about you if you are a true child of God. You are seeking with all of your heart to love God. You desire to please Him. You desire to turn away from every known sin and obey His commandments. Folks, it's not perfection. Don't don't hear me saying that. I am not saying that. It is not perfection. It is direction. Let me just give you a simple illustration. When you meet Jesus Christ, if you really... Students, listen to me. This is, we're not talking about praying a prayer and, quote, accepting Jesus. We're talking about meeting the God of the universe in Jesus Christ. And if you really meet Jesus, the God-man... Someone is going to change. If I 
got out here on Kilpatrick Turnpike and I started running in the middle of the road westbound and there's a semi coming and he's not paying attention, he's texting, which none of you ever do. And he's in the middle of the road and we meet. Even though I'm running as hard as I can, one of us is going to change directions. And it's not going to be the 18-wheeler. And we think that even in Baptist life, we think we can, quote, meet Jesus and then go on as we've always been. A life that's changed, John Charles Ryle said. Let's go on to the second part of this. Second part says this, the prayer of the righteous is as powerful as the God to whom we pray. I'm going to say some stuff in here, rapid fire with some verses, but we need, we need desperately to hear this. Now, do you, have it, do you have it in your heart that it's the prayer of a righteous person that is powerful, all right? So you've had encouragement from that because if you're in Christ, you're declared righteous. If you're in Christ, you're pursuing a life not of perfection, but the direction of your life is Christ's word, okay? So that should encourage you to pray. Second thing here, the prayer of the righteous is as powerful to the God to whom you are praying. Let me say this. I, I want you to take these things and wrestle with them. If you have family dinner today for, for lunch, talk about these kinds of things. Listen to what I'm about to say. There is no inherent power in prayer itself. Your prayer must focus on God who is all-powerful, who is omnipotent. And this has to do with your worldview. Or let me say it like this, your worldview in terms of God, your God view. May I ask you a question? How do you see God? Went back and just did some studying, some, some looking back. and how do, people, how do people in our world see God? I'm not talking about just your world, but the world in, in general, our, our country, our culture, and then worldwide. And I think it boils down to this, and it was expressed in a book that was written some time ago by a Jewish rabbi. And he started out with a great question. But I think he ended in the wrong place. His name was Rabbi Harold Kushner, and he wrote a book entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he was, he was looking at the book of Job and talking about that. Now, you can tell in the title of his book, he, he's a little bit off there. You understand what I'm talking about? That's a good thing for you to talk to your kids about, parents and grandkids, grandparents. So even in the title, when bad things happen to good people, that's a relative term. But here's what Rabbi Harold Kushner said, and, and this, this really encapsulates the, the views of God that are out there today. Let me summarize it, then we'll read the quote. Either God is big enough to do something about your problem, but he is powerless to do so. Or God, and by the way, powerless to do so means that he doesn't really want to do anything about it. 
or he wants to do something about it, but he is not all-powerful. And that is the choice that Rabbi Kushner took. He wanted to stress the compassion of God, and that, that's big in, in our religious circles today. We, we want to talk about the love of God, the compassion of God, and that is good. But if you don't balance that with the power of God, we're dead in the water, right? And so here's basically what he said. God wants the righteous, and I think he was using that term to describe good people, what he would consider good people, to live peaceful, happy lives. Moralistic, therapeutic deism, that's the religion of today. But sometimes even he can't bring that about. It is too difficult even for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming they're innocent victims. And do you know how many people have a view, their worldview, their God view, is that? Do you know how many people in the church have that kind of worldview? And folks, that's devastating to prayer. But let's just balance that with what the Word says. And I could go over Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. The psalmist said it like this, so that we will know that God is powerful enough to do what He wants to do. In fact, it says it. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth and in all the deeps. That's why we go back to that statement. Our prayer is as powerful as the God to whom we pray. Ian e. Bounds said it like this. Ian e. Bounds was, uh, again, a guy that lived here in America in the, in the 18, 1800s, and he said this, prayer can do anything that God can do. Do you believe that? Do you? Prayer can do anything that God can do. That's a wonderful statement. But even as I hear that, there, there's that check. In my, in my own feelings, we started out by talking about the check in our feelings sometimes, because I'm, I'm just here to tell you today that even as I prepared this, I, I thought, how am I going to stand before these people and talk about prayer? I am not an expert in prayer. I've struggled with prayer my entire life as a Christian. Because I've, I've, I've had my share of seemingly unanswered prayer. And what I mean by that is I've prayed for a lot of people who were sick to get better. I'll never forget after I started pastoring my first church, and I, I really got a little bit of a complex. We talked about this last week when... Um, we, we encouraged you to call for the elders of the church and they would come and anoint with oil and pray because that's what James says in the preceding passage. But after uh, several years of going and praying and, and me personally being asked to go and pray for people, and, and no kidding, no kidding, they died. And, and I actually told someone, I, I don't know, even if I was halfway joking, uh, there was some seriousness in it. The next time somebody asked me to come and pray, and I said, you really don't want me to do that. Because when I pray, people die. 
So how do you get at this? E.M. Bounds, prayer can do anything that God can do. And I've got such a depth of struggle with that. I've prayed for so many, and I'm talking about relatives. I'm talking about dear, dear friends who are off doing their own thing. They could care less about the things of God Jesus Christ. I don't know if they're atheists or agnostics. I don't know, but I've prayed for some of those for years. And again, I'm talking about family members and when I see them go even further and further away. Can anybody else relate? God always answers prayer. Sometimes he says, wait. You need to keep praying. That'll be one of our applications as we come to the end in a few moments. In fact, the story of Elijah, if you know the thing about the rain, how many times did he have to pray before it rained? He prayed, nothing. He prayed, nothing. Seven times before God sent the rain. So maybe you've prayed. Maybe you've prayed three or four or five or six or seven. Listen, sometimes God says wait, and he he hasn't come to the place where he's going to answer your prayer. Sometimes he just flat out says no. He said it to Paul, who prayed three times that the thorn would be removed from his flesh. And what did God finally say? No, Paul, because that's not the plan that I have for you. Now, I know you don't understand it. The thorn is not a, a pleasant thing. By the way, do any of you have thorns that you've asked the Lord to remove? And that could take the application of a, just a ton of different things. And the Lord may be saying to you, no, because I have another plan for you to glorify me by me strengthening you in your weak place. I've got this... Uh, on my prayer guide uh, that I pull out, it's based on the Lord's Prayer, and I've got things packed into it. But right up at the very top, I've got these words from Charles Spurgeon. And they remind me that when I start praying, this is, the, this is the God view that I need to have. By the way, this is the God view that you need to have. God, you talk about the p- compassion of God, God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken and when we cannot trace his hand then we must trust his heart could I ask you today do you trust God the prayer of a righteous person is as powerful as the God to whom he prays now there's a second part underneath that Prayer is available to every righteous believer at every time and in every place. And sometimes we forget this. Prayer is available to you at every time and every place. No matter where you are. Prayer is available. Why? Why? Because God is available to you, Christian. I I wrote down three different scriptures for this and I thought nope I'm going to shorten that I'm going to pick my favorite one one of the scriptures that I know that prayer is available because God is available is found in Hebrews 
chapter 13 and verses 5 and 6. Here's why I know that God is available always because He has promised us that He will never leave us or forsake us. Therefore, we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There are other verses that are encouraging, but for me personally, none better than that. Let me just unpack that a little bit about God being available at all times and in all places. Okay, are you ready? And these are things, and I don't care what religious background you're from, but we, they, they creep into our worldview, our God view. Here's a big one. The power of prayer is not limited to prayers offered in a church building on Sunday. Mm. Sometimes Baptists kind of fall into that. We think that somehow on Sunday morning or whenever we meet in the church building on the day of worship that somehow prayers are more powerful. They're not any more powerful than the prayer that you prayed on the way in this morning. And it may have been just a a, a brief send up to the Lord. Here's another thing about that. The power of prayer is not limited to prayers offered by ordained ministers. Please, get out of that. Again, I told you that, I'll tell you, when, when our kids were young, even in our family, our kids had a lot more powerful prayers than I did. And so we need to, 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 to realize that not the prayers of ordained ministers or the prayers given in eloquent language. Oh God, we thank Thee. Come on. The power of prayer is not dictated or determined by that. If you, listen, if you know Jesus Christ, and this is for some of you young people, and you think, I don't count because I'm a young people. I'm a young person. No, no, no. If you know Jesus Christ, then wherever you are and whatever you need, you call out to God. God will hear and he will answer according to his will. There's a second thing that goes along with that. And again, I'm trying to explode these ideas and had an example of this this morning. I thought, wow, this is great. God God doesn't value, weigh the value of our prayers by their length. Have you ever noticed in the Bible how many prayers are short? Almost all of them. The Lord's Prayer is a really short prayer, but it is packed. In fact, Jesus rebuked the religious people of his day for their long and eloquent prayers. Please, please hear this. Now, don't let this be a substitute for the extended times of prayers that you have. Please. But even if you've got a moment, even if you've got only a moment, you can send up a prayer. And God will hear because it's not limited by the length. 
of the prayer. Here's something else that we say, and, and this is what I was talking about this morning. Sometimes we think if we can just get enough people to pray, then it will be more effective. The more the merrier, the more the better. Now, I want you to notice something in the text. The fervent prayer of what? A righteous person. It doesn't say the fervent prayer of many righteous people. Now, do we want more praying? Yes, we do. We have a small group that meets in my office every Sunday morning at 8.30, and we pray till 9 for the service and for things that are going on. We thank God for the answered prayer from last week. We, we have anywhere from 5, maybe on a good Sunday, to 8, and it's really good. We were packed this morning. We had 10. I'm going to have to move out of my office. And the more that are praying, yes, the more that they're going to be blessed because of it. So, yes, we want more people praying, but not because we think that the more that pray, the more that God is going to hear. He hears the prayers of a righteous person. You know, in Ezekiel, he says, I'm looking for a man, a woman to stand in the gap. And, and uh, what I'm trying to do is to broaden your, your, your thought of this so that you'll know that I don't have to be with a group. I can send up even a brief pair, prayer. If I'm walking in what God has for me, God will hear my prayer. Now, there's another thing <laughs> to point out from this. Also, it doesn't say that the righteous man has to agonize in order for the prayer to be effective. Am I against, against agonizing in prayer? It says fervent. It says fervent prayer. Praying with prayer, literally. Let me give you the difference that I, I think is shown here. God wants us to pray with prayer. He wants us to be earnest about it. So if somebody is sick or a family member is hurting, you, you don't just sit down and you just pray a little, oh God, bless mommy and daddy and blah, 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 and amen. There, sh there should be earnestness. And, and, and the more desperate the situation, the more earnest your prayer is going to be. And sometimes there will be an agonizing in prayer. We see that in the scriptures. But do not think that you're required to get into this emotional state, agonizing for hours and hours for God to hear your prayers. Reading back in the story of Elijah, that's what the prophets of Baal thought. They were agonizing. They were cutting themselves and crying out to God, you know, their God, all day long. Listen, the Lord knows your situation. He knows what you need. God will answer our prayers on the basis of his grace through Jesus Christ, not on the basis of you and I working up certain feelings. So, James says that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and it's working. Then he illustrates the theme. We go on to the illustration now. Here's the example, Elijah. All right. It, at first glance, does that encourage you or discourage you? 
really? Come on. What, what, it discourages me. I'm, I mean, Elijah was a, he is a legend. You jot this down. First uh, Kings around 17 to 2 Kings 2. That's the story. That's the, that's the place where Elijah shows up. Elijah the Tishbite, who came on the scene, and I mean miracle after miracle. He went to this widow's house and said, bake me a cake. Give me some water. I, I only have enough flour for one cake, enough water for a drink. I'm going to give it to my son, and we're going to die. He said, you give it to me, and you won't lack. And all of a sudden, there was this miraculous, the oil rather than water, the oil and, and the flour didn't run out. And then the widow's son died. And there was a resuscitation. He brought the widow's son back to life. And then there was the confrontation. The prophets of Baal, you, you know the story. He, he put water on the, the altar and then he asked for the fire of God to fall and it, the fire of God did fall. I mean, this guy was a legend. He was impressive. But he's intimidating. Because automatically, you and I look at this and we think, "Ah, James, you kind of missed it there. Because I am not like him. So what does James do? I love how the Word of God encourages the people of God. He points to Elijah but right out of the chute, what does he say about Elijah? He says he was a man, listen to this, with a nature like yours. Now, I've got uh, a, a couple of, of, of verses cha- uh, from the chapter in First Kings that I want to show you. It's lengthy, but I just want you to see it. You can write it down. Go back and read it for yourself. Because this is good. Right after the, the encounter with the prophets of, uh, of Baal, those were Jezebel's prophets. And by the way, what did, what did Elijah do when he, uh, after he had defeated them on Mount Carmel? What did he do? He took them out, all 450 of them, and he killed them. Someone asked me last week, we were talking about it, well, did Elijah do that himself or did he have it done? I'm not sure of which, but this guy was salty. Okay? And so the very next scene in this act is when Jezebel heard about it. Whew. She was salty too, but in a different way. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah and said, Elijah, what you did to the prophets, I'm going to do to you. I'm going to kill you. So what did the great Elijah do? Now remember, James is pointing to him and he says he was a man with a like nature like you. Let's see what Elijah did. Then he was afraid. This guy who had faced lack. This guy who had faced death, this guy who had faced false prophets, 450 of them, and all of a sudden this woman says she's coming after him, and what's the first thing he does? What we do a lot of times when we encounter those walls in our lives, we get afraid. And what else did he do? He's a lot like us. 
He arose and he ran the other way. He ran for his life. Came down, sat under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die. You know what? He was more like us than you can even imagine. He was so afraid, and he ran so hard, and he finally got to where he wanted to get, and he was suicidal. James is saying, you know, he was a guy like us. He had weaknesses. He wasn't perfect. He had his ups and downs, and he was anything but perfect. But here is the key. He prayed, it says earnestly, that it might not rain. And then he prayed that it would rain. He didn't give up. Because the power of prayer is not with man. The power of prayer is with God. Elijah was a man who lived in ungodly times. That's another way that he was like us, but his prayers affected an entire nation. Do we live in ungodly times? Do you understand that your prayers can affect an entire nation? The world! A man. He's looking for a man. God is looking for a man or a woman who will stand in the gap or a student who will stand in the gap. Let me show you something. I'm going to kind of paraphrase this so that we can kind of get at it. I want to show you the days in which Elijah lived. All right? There was a king named Ahab. I don't know. I'm doing this for illustration purposes. Please follow along. I don't know if Ahab was a Republican or a Democrat. But this, this is why I say it. If you're a Republican, then you probably think Ahab was a Democrat. And if you're a Democrat, you probably think Ahab was a Republican. But listen to this. Whoever it was at at, at the highest levels of of the government of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Look at what he did. More than all who were before him, it wasn't a slight thing for him to walk in the ways of Jeroboam of Nebat. He took for his wife Jezebel. That was horrible. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he built a, 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 a temple for Baal and an altar in the temple. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel were before him. And if you think things are bad now, things were bad then I, I like this, because if, if you, listen to me, if you are going to stand for righteousness in the midst of an evil world, what is the evil world going to say about you? The same thing that Ahab said about Elijah. Elijah came to him, and he accused him. He said, are you the troubler of Israel? And Elijah said, hey, I, I'm, you're barking up the wrong tree. I'm not the one who is troubling Israel. You are, Ahab, because of what you have done. By the way, that political party thing, I've I've said this before from this pulpit. No political party has the Lion of Judah by the tail. You just remember that, okay? But let me move on 
with this. He knew God. He desired to follow the Lord. And why did, why did he pray for it not to rain? And it didn't rain for three and a half years. Have, have you ever wondered that? Folks, that would, be, that would be just like praying today for the stock market to crash. Anybody have a little jump in their heart when the stock market kind of went down this last week? Your 401k and all the rest of that? What he was doing, because Israel depended upon the rain for their livelihood. And Elijah, in opposition to what Ahab thought, he did not hate Israel because he knew the promise back way back in Deuteronomy. And what he wanted Israel to do was get into a place where they didn't depend on themselves or false gods, but they cried out to God and followed him. And that's what we need to do. You see the application there, three of them? The application, we should be motivated to pray. So what do you do? What do you do? When you live in overwhelmingly ungodly times, what do you do? What do you do? I'm asking this. You pray. Well, the church is not praying. You pray. Pray that God would send a revival. A lot of revivals start with people looking around and seeing the ungodliness of the times. And the revival would be this, that they may know God. Do you face circumstances that are far beyond your ability to change? Like a job situation or a marriage or your spouse, children, parents? Struggle to know why you are where you are? If you face circumstances that are beyond you, what do you do? You pray. And then when you sense that you have personal inadequacy, what do you do? You pray. There's a question at the last of the story of Elijah before he's whisked off the scene and taken to heaven. And the question is this. Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And sometimes in our day we ask the same thing. Where's God? Why doesn't God just show up? Here's the real question, not where is the God of Elijah, but where are the Elijahs of God? God has given you the authority, Christian, to pray and see God pour out showers of blessing upon you and your family in this church, in this nation, and this world. Pray. Father, we thank you that your word tells us everything that we need to know. And uh, I always admit that even through stammering and stuttering lips, I pray that your word might find its way into our hearts and that we might respond to you. So, Father, I give us that as we now sing a response and then as we again say your scripture back to you and depart from this place, that those of us who know you, might go out motivated to pray. Those who don't, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, turning from trusting in self 
turning from rebellion toward God, turning to faith in Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us now to respond appropriately. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?